It's a joy to have Ron Kranz from Bishop of Souls from the United States of America joining us. He's no stranger to Frontline Fellowship. But we haven't had him at the Reformation Society for a very long time. Last time was a Biblical Worldview Summit out with Manus. Welcome back, Ron. The lecture is all yours. Thank you, thank you. Well, greetings in the victorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You have to understand that uh, before I, when I first arrived in Africa this time around, I was in jo Joburg and I was ministering with a church that is mostly made up of Congolese refugees and very, very charismatic group. And uh, then uh, Olga and I and Charles and some others were leading a, uh, a camp, uh, a, a, a conference in which I think it went four days and I had seven lectures in four days and that was a very charismatic group and so uh, now I am not in a charismatic group I realize and I want to I want to bear that in mind because I don't want to get myself in trouble uh, an in common friend yeah because <laughs> There'll be no swinging from the chandeliers tonight. There's no chandeliers here to swing from. There'll be no altar call, I don't think. Uh, but we shall see. Uh, we have an in common friend, and uh, Joel Saint. Uh, between Joel Saint and Charles, we all know Charles. I think most everybody knows Charles pretty well. He's a dear friend, good long-term friend of mine and ours. And uh, and Joel Saint, an American. And where he's friends with all of us, and they have a nickname for Charles in in his family, and it is Nice Peter Hammond. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said to he told me this. Did you notice? No. Oh, you didn't notice. Okay, this this is getting better by the moment. <laughs> this was worth the trip. So. I said, no, no, it's impossible. That's not fair at all. Anyone who is nice cannot be Peter Hamlet. <laughs> and part of what I'm going to talk about tonight is an indictment of empty niceness that passes for Christianity. Empty niceness, smiles and waves, trying to get through it, that stuff, yeah, you know, the queens, yeah, and that passes, not that politeness and holding the door open for people and being nice and pleasant and not swearing are not good attributes, but they are not marks of actual Christianity. They can be used even as a counterfeit. I'm going to talk about the hypocrisy of pietism. Has anybody heard the term pietism? I know, yeah, yeah, I know, and you have. So it's actually not talked about very much. And you can make it a hundred years in church and nobody will talk about pietism. As you'll see, there's a reason. Pietism, by contrast to piety, piety is a good thing. You want to be pious. You want to have, Jim, you want to have a righteousness that comes from God. But pietism, on the other hand, is a counterfeit. It does that all of the outward acts of Christianity are what we think is Christian behavior, but it disguises something that's not there or it inflates something to be greater than it is. It's very much 
pharisaical, and it is a problem as you will see. What brings me to this discussion, and as Dr. Hammond has said, is that we do a lot in the church that I pastor, we have, uh, we kind of specialize in street missions. We go to the abortion mills, we go to the universities, we go to the, I live in DC and that area. So we go to the monuments, we do track distributions and these kind of things, bringing the gospel of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ into con conflict with the world in which we find ourselves. And at one sign ministry I was doing with uh, another elder, uh, a group of us were at the abortion mill uh, and we're standing, we have signs, and there was a lag in time, and the elder asked me a, a, a provocative question. He said, Ron, when do you think our country, the United States, when did the spiritual decline begin? That's a provocative question. What happened to us? When did we start going downhill? What led to this? And I started to, and we just muse, it's just two friends talking on the street. And I thought about music, you know, the, the music industry and money has gotten involved with ministry. Celebrity pastors are a problem with, uh, with the culture of Christianity. If you, in my country, the federal income tax with the exemption for churches. By the way, that exemption comes at an expense. That exemption comes at the expense of the earnest preaching of the word of God, because you get this in the United States. I'm not sure how it is. Do we have that here? Doctor, do we get exemptions? No, I don't got the exemptions. It's you're better off without them, because when you have an exemption, you are then tempted to then placate the state and say what they want you to say. And it's not a trivial exemption. That exemption matters. And so I thought about that, and I thought about the tent revival meetings and the Civil War and the dispensationalism and all of these things that we talked about. The French Revolution, you familiar with uh, René Descartes? Anybody know the philosopher René Descartes? Yeah, he said famously, je pense, donc je suis, I think, therefore I am, which was an introduction of the self-determined man. You remember Adam and Eve when they fell, the enemy said, on the day that you eat of the fruit, you will, you will not surely die, you will become like God's knowing the difference from good and evil. That word knowing can be translated determining evil from good. You will decide what is good. You will decide what is evil. And so unleashing this idea on humanity and from the garden forward that you could be the one to decide, which is why we have men who say, I'm a woman and women who say, I'm a man. And why people who can say killing babies is good and people who can say saving babies is bad. That's the self-determined man. Well, that became formalized in Rene Descartes when he said, I think, therefore I am. And so this is well known among, among Christian scholars who understand that the, the whole descent, but there's something else that happened at the time of Descartes. And I wanna bring you historically up to date. There was a parallel thing going on in 1650. Now remember that my elder, our elder had asked me, when do you think the descent began? And before, and in a short period of time, I'm in 1650. So there's a long history of failure 
from the, from the Christian pulpit, from the culture of Christianity that needs to be addressed. And I'll show you what I believe it is. I'll make my case. A contemporary of Rene Descartes was a guy by the name of Philip Jacob Spanner. You don't have to remember that name necessarily. I'm giving you, I'm just throwing it out to you so that you'll know that I know. Um, and I, I'm just getting ready to release a book uh, on this, and I'll, I'll send it to you, doctor. And once I get it in print, I'll, I'll, I'll have it printed here, and we'll give them to you. But uh, I actually started out as a paper. I was writing a paper, and it became 80,000 words. And so <laughs> that's what happened. So at any rate, so I, I just want you to understand that I know the background associated with this Spainer was a contemporary of Descartes. He was the father of pietism. He emphasized, this is very important, consider this, friends. He emphasized personal devotion, Bible study, and personal edification. What's the matter with that? That's fantastic, right? We should all be writing our Bibles and looking to be edified and built up in the Lord. But there's the problem. The Spainer believed those things to the exclusion of matters beyond personal edification, and he discouraged talking about divisive things and things that might offend. This is in 1650s. He discouraged talking about being offensive. He's a Christian guy. And he's saying, no, 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 we should just read our Bibles and gather around and look at our Bibles and consider, you know, what God has for us in our personal hearts and our personal relationship with Jesus and our personal, personal. He's all about the personal, personal and leaving the world to go wherever the world will go apart from saying, I'm not going to talk about divisive things means by definition, I am not going to teach the gospel. Right? How can you how can you come into conflict? How does you mean life? Have you heard that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword divisive? So what even it begs this question, what Bible was he studying with all this Bible study? He gets his Bible study going, you know, Bible study, Bible study, Bible study, I'm a big fan of the Bible study, but then saying, but don't be divisive. It's an impossibility, and all you have to do is take one hour with me and go to the abortion mill and stand there with a sign where they kill babies, and you'll see divisiveness. Go to, a, go to somewhere, go to Gay Pride Day in Washington, D.C., and proclaim the rights of Jesus Christ, and you'll see divisive. And he, in the 1600s, discouraged it. He was influenced by a guy by the name of Johann Arndt, who emphasized subjective experience. Isn't that great? I feel, therefore I am. Yeah, uh, you philosophers will get that. You know, I think, therefore I am, I feel, therefore I am. In other words, it's determined by what I feel. And that became the grounding point for truth. Truth cannot be grounded on your experience because your experience is, your experience is like the shifting sand. And I could, I could develop that more, but I won't. But I just want to give you a painting, a picture for you. Arndt was influenced by a guy by the name of Simon Sulzer. And for him, unity was king. Well, you must know that there's such a thing as empty unity, that you can unify on lies, or you can unify on the truth.
So just saying we're going to unify doesn't really mean anything. It's kind of empty calories. I was uh, preaching the gospel. Uh, anybody heard the name uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Pagan, wicked judge, dead now. Uh, on her way to judgment unless she repented very, very late in life. And uh, she was just a wicked, humanist, pagan judge. Well, I went down there for her candlelight vigil, you know, to speak some truth with a couple friends. And people were rabid against us, I mean, naturally. And, but some of them were professing Christians. And the consistent thing that I heard from them was, this is a time for unity. How am I supposed to unify with a woman who hates God? How am I going to unify with somebody who agrees that thinks that babies should be killed? How do you unify? Is that valuable unity? But yet in the 1500s, Christians, Christians were saying, you know, we need to unify. This isn't a, and what I'm developing here for you, friends, is that this is not a new thing. This has been, this has been stirring for a long, long time. Their ideology could be summed up as follows. Unity over and above division and controversy. Number two, subjective experience over objective truth. Three, conversion and edification to the exclusion of external matters. Now, here's the thing. Is that gospel can't advance? And let me explain to you something, beloved. The gospel that can't advance is not the gospel. The gospel was never designed to be stored up in little and little and little and little uh, prisons that we call churches and Bible studies. It was always designed to be released on the culture. It was always designed. Jesus himself warns against the light that's hidden under a bushel. The only way for light to be kept in places if it self-contains. If I were to turn off the lights and then turn them back on, could the darkness fight back? The only way the darkness can be defeated, can, 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 can overcome light is if the light self surrenders. And this was happening 500 years ago. So toothless Christianity is not new. And I just, I want to emphasize that so that we know that what we're up against, we who really care deeply about the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, is that we have a root of pietistic thinking that needs, that's 500 years old. And we have to hack at that thing. So historically speaking, we have pietism, which came before the Age of Enlightenment, the French Revolution, pre-tribulation, dispensationalism, they call it, Escape-minded tent revival meetings, complete with a retreat of songs, public education, the federal income tax law, uh, all with their uh, tax exemptions and Jesus freaks. It, does anybody, only people in here who could possibly remember the Jesus, you remember the Jesus freaks, Lenora? I got a couple there. Uh, uh, none of you all know, that was 70s, 60s. Remember the Jesus freaks? They were impossible. Their, 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 their version of the gospel was this. They, were, they would say things like this, and I'm not lampoon, I, I'm, I'm telling you what they said and how they say it. They would say, I tried everything, man. I tried like drugs, man. 
And I went and listened to rock music, man, women, man. Nothing made me as high as Jesus, man. <laughs> it made me high, man. You know. Those guys, I mean, what a pitiful, what a pitiful reflection of the mighty warrior that we have in Jesus Christ. This is nothing like Jesus Christ. Anyhow, the point being is that we have, and this is not a popular statement in Christian circles, we have not been invaded. We have surrendered. We've not been invaded. We've surrendered. We surrendered before the fight. 500 years ago, we were throwing down our swords. And that has to change. And I'm really pleased that I'm speaking to well, I usually am speaking to people who are younger than me, but especially, it's just something that happens over time. But I'm really pleased at the seriousness. Like in our church, I'm getting new people all the time who are ready to do battle, who are ready. And so praise the Lord for you. And I'm glad for the opportunity to be able to speak uh, into this into this group. At first I thought that was a dog, and I said, no, I can't be at Peter Hammond's place. <laughs> that would have been an impossible. I was back at Charles' place. You know? Anyhow, pietism has left a mark, and it's a long mark, and we've got to go, if we believe that Jesus Christ deserves the culture of the world, we've got to go after this root. And what I want to display to you over the next few minutes, next 20 minutes or whatever it takes, is that the hypocrisy of pietism is that the pietist is not nearly as devoted as they pretend to be. I'm going to say that again. They're not nearly as devoted as their smiles and their waves impersonate. In fact, the pietist is driven almost entirely by the same things that unbelievers are. I'm in a, online, I was put into, and I accepted an invitation to a pre-tribulation rapture group. Now, you should know, just at a, just at a brief, if you know anything about the pre-tribulation rapture people, you know I'm not pre-trib, right? I mean, you should know that. Anybody who knows anything about their millennial stance or eschatology at all would understand, I'm not pre-trib. But I went into the group because I was curious to see what are the pre-trib people talking about. The pre-trib is basically we're going to be raptured any minute now, you know, before there's any trouble. We're going to get out of it. And then God is going to, his, the way he's going to redeem the world is to destroy the world, which is lost on me. But at any rate, this woman who runs this group has discouraged her members from getting married from having jobs, having children, from starting businesses. Do you see how that can advance? It can't. It's dead in the water. Don't get married. Don't have children. Don't get educated. Don't start business. Leave that to the pagans. Let them do that stuff. We're going to get ready for the rapture. And so I, I pay attention to her, and I want to give a direct quote from this lady. She says, quote, if you are pre-trib, you have all your bases covered. No matter what, if you die unexpectedly or the rapture occurs, you will be ready. Yay. <laughs> Notice that she's absent 
of anything about believing on the name of Jesus and nothing about faith and repentance. It's all about being ready for the rapture. But notice this, and this is perhaps more important. She reduces, hear me now, she reduces the gospel to having your bases covered. Mark your mind. She reduces the gospel to having your bases covered. Anybody that thinks the gospel is so truncated, this is the whole goal of it, is so that you can get take your pumpkin heart from hell to heaven, which it does do, and that's it, does not understand the gospel of the kingdom of God. If you read, go to your concordance sometime and look up the word in the New Testament church, and you'll see it four or five times. Look up the word kingdom. You'll see it again and again and again and again. God is concerned. The gospel is about the kingdom of God on earth. He did not come here to bring you simply to heaven. He came to bring heaven to earth. There's a plan to do greater than what we have done. And we have abandoned the world to itself so that we can have our bases covered. Now, just to be clear, this lady... Um, who also makes it clear that she will block anybody who disagrees with her. Uh, so, uh, okay. And she, this is not a fringe sentiment. When I joined this group, joined this group thir uh, three months ago, something like that, she had 30,000 followers. She has 45,000 now. She's growing 5,000 members. And this is in spite of the fact that the pre-trib rapture people keep getting it wrong. Anybody remember Harold Camping? We all remember that guy. Those of us who are old enough to remember, they've been guessing wrong again and again with their charts and their maps. Leaving the culture to go to hell while they have their bases covered. That's not the plan. So I'm going to give you, take you to some scripture. Uh, Want to get one thing right? Go to scripture. I'm going to be in Isaiah in the 58th chapter, Isaiah 58, and I'll read the first five verses and I'll go back and I'll make an observation or two. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgression in the house of Jacob, their sins. Yet, they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen a day for man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast? and an acceptable day to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. A couple things about this group of people that are being described. They have every appearance of righteousness. They look like really good people. They have, everything about them has, they have their, 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 their culturally speaking, Christian culturally speaking, they have their T's crossed, their eyes dotted, 
They look perfectly well-behaved Christian. Their hands are folded in their lap like little Lord Fauntleroy. They say amen when they're supposed to say amen. They stand and sit when they're supposed to stand and sit, and they're well-admired. These are wonderful people, wonderful Christian people, one would think. They seem to be seeking God. They're even fasting, and they appear, and I want to say that word, they appear, to be seeking justice. But then there's a tension in the third verse. It says, why have we fasted and you have not seen? And there's the tension comes up. Why? Why are you Why are you doing this? Why is it that we're doing all this fasting, we're standing and sitting and saying amen and hallelujah and coming and tithing and doing all these good things and these wonderful things, and yet you don't see us. How is it that our lives are so bad? Well, the Lord answers the question. He says, because you exploit, you fast for strife and debate, and you strike with the fist. Behind the veil of their, of their outward appearance, behind the veil of their Christian lingo, they are abusive, self-righteous, violent. They don't want justice. What they want is what's best for them. This is what makes them be about Christ. It's all about what goes through them. What is best for me? They want their bases covered. That's the whole gospel for them. What makes it go well for me? Paganism, beloved, can disguise itself with Christian lingo and pietistic displays all day long, but the tell is, is that it doesn't advance. You get a hold of that? It doesn't advance. It just sits there, reading the Bible, being edified, having personal experiences, feeling wonderful about my relationship with Jesus, but it does not take the land. It does not do what it was designed to do. When Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them all that I command and baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost and Lord, I be with you in the end of the age. He's not joking. All authority in heaven and earth. That's an expectation. Then at Pentecost, right before Pentecost, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power to do what? I asked the charismatics this morning. I said, power to lie on the ground and fry like bacon? <laughs> That's not the power. The power is to take the land for his name, for his glorious name. That's the power that's been given to us. And anything less is delinquency of duty. It's treasonous. I always wonder if I'm never going to be here again. I'm thinking <laughs> everywhere I go. No, you're good. You're, as long as you're all right, as long as I'm right before God. At any rate, you understand is that there's much more that's expected of us than, than we've been doing. And I want to I wanna make a, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. Having been on what some would call the front lines of the abortion fight. Um, uh, being in that battle. Uh, and that really ugly profoundly ugly battle. I want to tell you that the pagans love that blood. They love that blood sacrifice. It's not because they care about the mothers or reproductive rights. All you have to do is spend some time standing where they kill babies and talk to people about it and see the vitriol and the hate. And uh, one place, one university where I minister, uh, they, uh, uh, a colleague of mine 
got into their uh, their online uh, their their campus uh, online discussion group and found out that there was a uh, there was a bounty out on me to vomit on me. Yeah, they were going to pay somebody money to vomit on me. <laughs> you know, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> that, does that sound like neutrality? They love their blood sacrifice. They love it. They love it. They love that blood of Abel. They love it. It's not a neutral thing. But when I exhort other Christians about getting involved in Christian and justice, you know what I hear consistently? Oh, we don't worry about justice. That's in the Old Testament. Yeah. Again, once again, they've lost their Bibles and all the Bible studies. They can't read Matthew 23, 23. You've, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faith. Jesus seems to care about justice. He says in uh, Matthew 5, I think 17, do not begin to think that I came to abolish the law, but rather to establish it. The Bible, that, that word can be translated to ratify it. He expects his law to be kept. He expects Christians to care about righteousness. He cares, expects us to care about justice and righteous and mercy and truth. That's part of being a believer, not simply having our paces covered. And so I tell them, will you please come into the game? Will you do apologetics with me out in the, you know, in, in D.C.? Will you go to the campuses? Will you do something? Oh, we don't get involved. We don't care about justice. Nobody cares about that. You know what I always tell them? I say, well, which one is your car? And they say, why? Because I want to throw a brick through the window. <laughs> All of a sudden, they care about justice. <laughs> Oh, oh, no, 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 why would you do that? I thought you were a Christian man. No, I am a Christian man. Why don't you care about justice? Unless it's only justice for you is not justice. That's a, that's pietism. It's a showy display. Only caring about justice for yourself is pagan. The reason we have a pagan form of justice in our land is that for almost 500 years, there's been a subset of Christianity that hasn't cared about biblical justice. If we were to pursue biblical justice as much as we pursue our Bible studies and our personal relationships and our personal favor and our personal programs at every church that we go to, we would have taken the land already. We wouldn't have never known about abortion on demand or same-sex marriage. It would have been never mentioned. Let me give you an example further. I'll go to, uh, I'll go to the, uh, let's say I go to the abortion mill and I call it what it is, the abortion mill. It's not a clinic. Clinic is a place where they do medical procedures. That's not a medical procedure. Burning a baby to death or starving them to death chemically or tearing their body to pieces and crushing their skull is not a medical procedure. It's murder. Okay? And so you go to the murder mill and and in one of the places where I go, there's this very narrow strip where you can stand and you're trying to talk to the ladies and saying, ma'am, please don't harm your baby. Don't hurt your baby. We'll help you. We'll do whatever it takes. We don't want you to kill the baby. You know, we'll adopt the baby. Just bring the baby. Come talk to us like this, we'll say. And so you cross over that line. You know what happens? The, the clinic will call the police on you. The police will come out. And they will say, okay, 
And, you know, they know me, and they're like, all right, Mr. Kranz, you, you know, that's, you know. And it's, uh, do you want to get in the back of a squad car? And I'm like, I don't want to get in the back of a squad car. Uh, and so I'll get back, and and, and, and then and I get back on my side, and they, the police are called. So then I say on Sunday, I know what I'll do. We need more Christians out here because there are no Christians out here. The, the babies have been abandoned to the by the churches, so I go down to the church, and they bring a sign, and a couple of us will bring signs to the church and say, excuse me, one mile down the street, they're killing babies. You know, I don't ever see you guys doing anything about it. You know what they do? Call the police. <laughs> and you know who comes to see me? The same police who saw me on Saturday come on Sunday. And imagine, I've had some really interesting discussions with the, with the, with the boys in blue in Falls Church. You know, I mean, they're saying, wait, wait a minute, didn't I just see you yesterday? I mean, I expect you down there. What are you doing here? And so you say, all right, maybe I'm doing it wrong. I'll go down to the abortion mill next week and I come out on Saturday on the killing day and I think I'll hand out literature to the mothers. Please, you are a mother. I don't ever say this at an abortion mill. I don't say you would make a good mother. She's a mother already. You understand she's a mother. I hate that when they say, oh, you would make a wonderful mother. She's actually a terrible mother on that day. You know, don't be a terrible mother. Really, I love you. Baby's going to love you. You know, don't kill your baby. You know, you're killing the one who loves you. You know, don't do it. You're, you know, and you're appealing to them. You say, just take some literature. Just please take some literature and talk to us. You want to give some literature out. Well, what happens? Well, they have, we call them death scorts. They're escorts. Uh, if you've ever, I don't know if they have them in South Africa. You have them here also. They, do they wear vests? We have vests. We have vests. We, our people have vests denoting that they're escorting the women. And they escort the women and they shield the women from taking the literature so you can't talk to them. You can't have anything to do with them. And you're saying, please, please, ma'am, I'm really just one minute of your time. And we've seen babies saved. We have babies that are born, that are alive today by God's grace. Uh, but they, not because they don't try to shield us. And so you say, okay, I'm doing it wrong. I'll go down to the church on Sunday. I say, okay, no signs, no signs, nothing. I just want to give out some literature to you, you folks. Please take some literature. You do know they're killing babies a mile down the street. You know what they will do? They will shield us from giving literature to their congregation. Do you understand what I'm saying? Both institutions, the abortion mill and the church, are protecting their property. Both institutions are protecting their clientele. And both institutions are protective of their hostility, abuse, indifference, self-centeredness. Watch now. Both of them are calling it justice. You've overlooked the way to your matters of the law. Justice. Mercy. And truth. Homosexual marriage cannot take place unless we allow it, unless we have been surrendering. So abortion cannot occur unless we surrender it. It has not been imposed on us, although it will be 
uses a great judgment against our, both of our countries unless we take a stand. Whatever stands protects my interest is justice. I'll tell you another story. I'm an I'm a African preacher. I tell stories. Uh, the guy who added me to the pre- the premillennial pre-trib rapture dispensationalist group, he he did a social media post the other day, and uh, he said uh, he said uh, he was complaining about our president, and we have a terrible president. Our president is a wretched man. He's a wicked, wicked man. There's no question. Joe Biden is a terrible man. Yes, I said it. Recorded. Joe Biden is a pagan, wicked man, and. Uh, my name is Ron Kranz, and I, 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 I endorse this message. <laughs> He's a wicked man. And he was complaining about Joe Biden and saying, oh, it's so terrible. And then he said these words. Now, think about this, friends. This guy's pre-trip rapture. The whole object is to escape. The world's getting worse and worse. And that's part of God's plan. And he says, we should be crying out everywhere. I said, why? Why? So he will cry out. I've known this man for over 30 years. I've never heard his voice raised about the millions of dead babies. But he's crying out about Joe Biden. What right does he have? complain. That's not justice. That's hypocrisy. That's profound hypocrisy. And that's what the Lord is talking about in Isaiah. He's talking about a people who make every appearance of righteousness. They fast and they go through the process and all of that, but their chief concern is themselves. It's not the Lord. It's not the kingdom of God. It's them. It's all about them. That is not the gospel. And, you know, honestly, to me, my way of thinking, and maybe I'm misunderstanding the pre-trib rapture. If there is somebody who's pre-trib rapture in here, um, like, I'm not really sorry for anything I'm saying. And, but if I misread you, you know, correct me in the Q&A, maybe I'm misunderstanding things. But if I understand the pre-trib rapture, the plan is, is the world gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. It gets devastatingly worse. And then he, then he raptures us out of here and then he blows the planet up, destroys it, and then replaces it with something good. Well, don't, doesn't it make sense that if the world is getting bad, that in the idea of a pre-trib rapture guy, that's a good thing? That'd be great. We're coming close to the day. Jesus must be here any minute now because it's got worse. But instead he's complaining, but he only complains, beloved, about his own interest. He's not complaining when God's name is defaced. Do you know what the worst thing about abortion is? It's not that it's icky or that it's, or that it's gruesome or that it's any of those things. You know what the very worst thing about it is? Is that, it, that God despises it. It's, it's the image of God that's being attacked. That's the worst thing about it. It's the image of God that's being assaulted. That's the worst thing. But unless we see things through, through, the, uh, through the sensibilities of God's righteousness, we will become absorbed with our own sense of need to escape, survive. That's not the plan. Uh, I don't know about you, Peter, 
Um, when I travel, and I travel quite a bit, not quite as much as I used to, um, less these days, but earlier on, when I would travel, I'm getting packed in my bag, say, okay, everybody pray for me. Don't forget to pray for me. I'm out of here. I'm going to Burundi or something, you know. And, and so they would always pray one thing, always. Christians will always pray the same thing, be careful. Well, that's good and all. Is that really the goal? So, I mean, why should, well, I could be careful at home. Maybe I should get back in bed. Is that the plan? To be careful? And I said this to the group over the, over the weekend, is when you start with safety and escape, you will always have another level of safety and escape that you need. You will say, okay, I will sacrifice when the coast is clear. That means you will never sacrifice. I will, I will, I will risk when it's safe to risk. That's an oxymoron. Risk is real. What makes it so beautiful is that it's done for the sake of Christ. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Hebrews in the 13th chapter. In fact, let's play a little game tonight. I'm going to quote, you're going to, you'll finish the phrase. He himself has said, I will never leave you nor Hallelujah. Oh, that's a, this is a, this is a clever group. Okay, now let's keep going. He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that. Sorry, oh. I thought I had a winner. I was going Oh, I'm so excited. Nobody ever gets this, by the way. Matter of fact, nobody ever gonna ever try. So you get an A for participation. <laughs> no, no. He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The purpose of him never forsaking you isn't so that you can stay cuddled in a bed with your teddy bear and you're sucking your thumb with your safe relationship with Jesus Christ. The purpose of you being him never forsaking you or leaving you is so that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper and we may challenge every dark authority, every high thing and principality that exalts itself above the knowledge of God. That's the purpose. Not for not so we can right. I got an amen on the doctor on that one. Come on. You got to know, man, there's a purpose for your safety. It's not an end to itself. All you know, you want safety. I'll give you safety. All authority is given me in heaven and earth. That's a lot of safety. There's no more safety than that. All authority is given me in heaven and earth. You can't get any safer than that. That's as safe as it gets. So then boldly. Take no fear of man. Take no fear of man. He will never leave you nor forsake you so that you may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? In a uh, article in 1971, in the, uh, in, uh, I think it was in uh, Life, yeah, Life magazine. You can't read in Life magazine, there was a woman by the name of Jane Howard, a pagan woman. Uh, she wrote it entitled, The Groovy Christians of Rye, New York. Sounds groovy. <laughs> uh, and she wrote of these, and these were the Jesus freak kind of folks. 
She wrote, these children feel invincible. Now, let me just stop with that comment there. Um, I lead a church uh, out on the street, and we get called everything. The vitriol that comes to us. You know what? Nobody has ever called me. Never. And I've been called some things. Nobody calls me a child. Nobody calls me a child. That's a disgrace. The people have stayed perennially immature. That's a disgrace. I write to you young men. He says, I write to you young men because you were strong in 1 John. I write to you young men because you were strong and you've overcome the wicked one. You're designed to mature. You're designed to become full-armed, full-orbed, fighting warriors for Jesus Christ, taking on every principality and power that exalts itself above the knowledge of God, not to keep looking for safety and escape. That's not the plan. And so she calls them children, but watch this, and this is a direct quote. So, so this is what one of them said. So long as we keep our shield of believing up, we can't get cancer, our car won't crash, and we won't get drafted into Vietnam, and we won't get killed or scratched. That's what they said. In 1971, mark that date. And then they add these words. This is a direct quote. But why get uptight about the draft? Jesus might be back before breakfast. End quote. That was in 1971. Anybody who knows anything about American history, recent American history knows this, that in 1973, Roe v. Wade was handed down. So these groovy Christians... We're waiting to have breakfast for Jesus and looking for God's favor and protection and having their bases covered and the world was killing babies. That's not good enough. The enemy's been taking the land, laying claim to education, justice, truth, and anything else, all of which rightfully belongs to Jesus Christ. When Fanny Crosby said, uh, anybody heard of Fanny Crosby? Oh, okay, all right. Um, yeah, prolific songwriter, kind of known for her, her theme of personal relationship with Jesus, which is wonderful, by the way. Make, make no mistake about it, I'm not assaulting that. I'm assaulting that being in a vacuum and into itself. She wrote a song called Take the World and Give Me Jesus. No offense to Fanny Crosby. The world was not hers to surrender. Did you hear that? When, when we were singing songs like, take the world and give me Jesus, the enemy says, okay. Because the enemy knows something, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That all authority belongs to Christ in heaven and earth. And not only this, let me give you a verse. Memorize this verse. Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's present tense. Not one day, someday, in the sweet by and by, after the rapture, after he comes again, or whatever it is you think, then finally he will be the reigning king of the earth. Right now, here today, Cyril Ramaphosa, 
Joe Biden, Shisha Keddy, every one of them are under the control. They are, they are ruled by Jesus Christ. Do, do you need to look that up and see that? Revelation 1, 5. The earth is the Lord. So let me close uh, with an idea. I don't want to overstay my bounds, but uh, I only get here every two or three years. Or One never knows these days. You know, I have wondered from time to time um, after all these years um, because I'm not going to comply with whatever I'm told to do in order to get on an airplane, if you know what I mean. I'm not going to just do whatever I'm told. I often wonder, is this the last time I'll be in Africa? And you, I was talking with the doctor earlier. We, we miss you in, Af in America. I could use you, when you're coming back? And he's like, and neither do I. Because we share that. We're not playing ball. We're not playing ball with the enemy. I want to give you just a, a couple words to close this idea out, and, and then I'll be anxious to try to answer your questions. I'll do my very best. Um, in the second chapter of uh, Matthew, and Olga, I apologize in advance. You've heard some of this, uh, so you're getting a second dose. Um, uh, but like uh, Peter said at dinner, is sometimes rep repetition leads to revelation. So, so we'll go with that. Um, Herod, um, and, and when Jesus was born, we, we pick it up in the second chapter, and the men come from the east, and they come to worship Jesus. And in the third verse, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Now, my question to you, and it's a rhetorical one, is why is a great big king concerned about a baby? Why is a whole city worried about a baby. They're not worried about a baby. They don't care about a baby. They care about a king. They care about a king. It's the king they care about. It's the king that disturbs them. It's the king that will rule over them. And they don't want the king to rule over them. And don't, don't let me go any further than I have to. You can, you can time me out anytime you want. But, you know, we could go all the way to the Olivet Discourse. We could go all the way to the Triumphal Entry. We could go all the way to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and take this out. But I won't go that far. Uh, we'll stay in, we'll stay in, in, in the beginning of Matthew. And, 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 and so here it does the unthinkable in, in response to this king that he can't stand, that he does not want to reign over him. He resorts to killing baby boys, two years and younger. This is especially intense for me. We have a grandson who's not yet a year old. The idea that they would slaughter babies because they were so desirous of ridding themselves of King Jesus. Now, this is an aside, just an aside, but I want you to consider this, friends. Would any Roman soldier, can any Roman soldier who participated in that slaughter go before God and say, I was just following orders? That is not good enough. And we have Christians saying that kind of stuff. Oh, no, they just disallowed the land. That's an aside. At any rate, he goes to, 
he resorts to killing these babies, and you know that you know this as well as I do. And Joseph is warned in a dream, and he goes up into Egypt, and then he's told again that he can come back down. And picking it up at the end of uh, the the chapter. Now, when Herod, verse nineteen. Now, when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, "Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child." life are dead. Don't miss this. Herod is dead. Jesus has not raised the dead yet. He has not done one miracle. Jesus has not said a public word. Jesus has done nothing publicly at all. He hasn't restored sight to the blind. He hasn't, he hasn't calmed the sea and he's already deposed his first king. The first king. So Jesus is just getting started. And this is going on through history. Every king who raises his hand against the Lord and his anointed falls in the same place, falls into God's judgment, but the kingdom of God remains forever. Over in the third chapter, the next thing you read is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the kingdom goes forward. Herod dies. His, Herod's influence died with him. In fact, Herod lost his influence before his body was dead. But Jesus Christ went down into a grave and came out of the grave and his influence has not been lost at all. Are you getting hold of this? Well and good as the second Psalm say that the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. We can laugh with him. We shouldn't be running from these guys. We need to bring them into conflict with the reality of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. I could go on. King Agrippa, he gives his great speech. Oh, the voice of a God and not a man. He was eaten with worms. Do you know what the extra biblical account of that is? Is that it took him five days to die. He was in misery, crying, shrieking. His flesh was rotting away while he was still alive. He stank so bad his own doctors wouldn't come in to see him. He was so bad where... Oh, I think we're old enough to hear this, that his private parts became putrid and infested with worms. God is not mocked. All authority is given him in heaven and earth. That's enough safety for me. I could go on about Nero and the empire, the Roman empire, Mao Zedong, Fidel Castro, Idi Amin, Robert Mugabe, they all fall. Every last one of them. I'll close with this idea. I know I said that once, didn't I? <laughs> our oldest daughter, I, I, I told the family over uh, at this conference, our oldest daughter says uh, of me, she says, that's the one lie you consistently say. <laughs> <laughs> one more thing. <laughs> Now, this is probably maybe one more thing. <laughs> Mao Zedong. Are you familiar with the name, I think? Uh, he was Chairman Mao. He made a determination. He was going to destroy Christianity in China. And he uh, went in and, and he did his level best. Uh, he went into the uh, Christian schools and just destroyed them scattered the children and away they went. And then he began his and he began his great leap, his humanist great leap forward. And in this humanist great leap forward, he did two remarkable things. He made he made roads. 
He improved transportation. So there were there used not to be roads in China, but he made these roads. Now you've got roads in China. Look what we can do. We're humanists. We can do anything we want. He made roads. And then he did one other thing. He standardized Mandarin Chinese. Now, if you know anything about China and the, from the 1960s and before, is that they had hundreds of dialects, hundreds of dialects. So if you traveled 50 kilometers, you no longer could really be intelligible and you, you couldn't be understood. But he made one language, roads for everybody and one language. Well, here's what happened. To get all of this is that Mao died. And after his death, those children that Mao scattered, you know what they did? They traveled on those roads. And you know what they did? They preached the gospel. And you know what they did? They preached that gospel in Mandarin Chinese. <laughs> Mao Zedong, servant of the Most High God. And the kingdom of God is advancing against the will of the enemy in communist China today. Against every effort to suppress, every effort to suppress the kingdom of God, we are not entitled to reduce the gospel to having our bases covered. We have a gospel to press, and even the enemy is making a road for us to do it. The enemy is opening the doors. I told the folks over the weekend that, you know, that this group of pastors wants to kind of get the churches opened again. I said, don't you see? God has taken us out of the church. The enemy is actually doing for us what we would not do ourselves. Praise the Lord. Our job is to prepare for the failure of every God-hating principality, seek their downfall if they refuse to repent, and press the rights of Jesus Christ forward. Jesus Christ did not come here to coexist. He came to seek and to save. That was, was lost. He came to redeem, and he came to rule. That's the plan. We have a king. We have a kingdom. That is expensive, and I will finish. This is the point, is that Jesus Christ, when he comes back from the grave, he says these words, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Comme le Père m'a envoyé, moi aussi, je vous envoie. <laughs> I'll always turn, I'll find the Congolese. <laughs> I will always find the Congolese. <laughs> as the Father sent me, so I sent you. Did the Father send Jesus to keep his life safe? Did the Father send Jesus to keep himself intact? One glance at the cross tells us. Did the Father send Jesus to fail? He didn't send you to fail has every intention of victory. Amen. Amen. So are there, uh, well, Father God, we acknowledge you. And uh, me, personally, I acknowledge uh, my own failures to press forward your rights as king, king of kings, lord of lords. 
And I uh, thank you for uh, each soul here, each individual here. Make us to be a voice in whatever area of influence that we have. Uh, to be unashamed of your gospel. Pushing it forward with gentleness and respect for all, but with a determination and a, an assurance that comes from you. We lift up your name. For your, your banner deserves to be lifted up high over the nations. Your king, you're our judge, you're our lawgiver, you're our king, and you will save us. And so we acknowledge you in this way. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So with the comments, is this what we do now? Yes, you sure now. Okay. Okay, yes. You mentioned the abortion industry as an area that the church must confront. What are other aspects in our culture, in our society today, that you see important issues for the church that need to be confronted? All right, that's a really good question. Um, I'm not dodging that question. I had somebody ask me uh, recently, uh, kind of a liberal Christian, she said, uh, where's all this humanism? And I said, where isn't it? And that's sort of the answer to your question. But do you remember in the 17th chapter of Acts when the, the apostle Paul comes into the city and he said it was full of idols and his spirit was provoked within him because there were idols. The whole city was taken over with idols. You remember that? Okay, this whole city is taken over with idols. We have homosexual uh, rights. We have, just name it, um, uh, we have the public education uh, system is a paganist cesspool. Um, our system of government is proud and lifted up and don't know that they're men and need to be brought down. We have to take them and tell them with gentleness and respect for them. I've been in their offices and told them, you know, you're going to have to answer to them. Each of these institutions, police, there's a, a police abuse out there, abuse of power, um, medical tyranny, right? Medical tyranny is one of them. We're going to control your body. You know, we'll tell you what to put into your body. All of these things are the things that need, need to be taken on. So there's a few. Does that give you a place to start? Somewhere to start. <laughs> Just a couple little things. Have that done by next week. Uh, and, and that's my opinion. That's my opinion. The Bible says that the God of peace will, try, uh, will, will crush Satan under your feet shortly. And so the idea of that is of someone moving forward. And so, and elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, it says he must reign until all of his enemies are placed under his feet. And so pick an enemy, take it down and move to the next enemy, you know? So yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of opportunity. Yes. Um, so you said there's a lot, you see a lot of enemies to fight and what is the best strategy to fight, let's say, abortion, for example, in a country like here? Because it's easy to talk about it and fight it with you together as a people that agree about it. But when you go out there, we meet people that actually absolutely disagree with us. What's the best way to convince them and, you know, okay. to tackle this? Like yeah. a strategic, like a practical way. 
Yes, um, well, uh, always the practical way does not ch change the biblical way. Um, and the biblical way is to have nothing to do with unfruitful deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. And so take the signs, take the signs to show what's going on. I've never ever in the many places that, that commit murder on the pre-born children, I've never seen one of them that says, we kill babies here. They didn't have a sign out front saying, no, we kill babies here, and here's how we do it. We crush their skull. Look, see, there's a picture of it. They don't show that. We have to show that. And so expose that wickedness, and that's, and, and, and this is a, an anthropological reality, is that what people respond to is what they see all the time and hear all the time. There's a reason, especially, in, say, in the United States, um, McDonald's keeps advertising. Well, who doesn't know in the United States about McDonald's? Well, they want to stay. They won't let you get away from them. We can't let our culture live at peace with child sacrifice. Disrupt that peace. Disrupt that peace. Now it'll come. That that hatred will come to you. So now, strategically, there's a, there's so many things. Um, uh, in James, the Bible says, you have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask amiss that you, that you might consume it upon your own lust. Part of it is that we haven't even asked for justice. We haven't demanded justice of our, uh, of our magistrates. Demand justice. Tell them. Go into the magistrate's office. Go into the, go into the, I've done it many times. You go to the city of councils. Go to, uh, we go to city councils where they kill babies and, and go in there and say, you know, you realize you're going to have to deal with this. You're going to answer for this. Don't let them be comfortable. They hate it when, when we come in there. But that's too bad. So be the voice for them, but be consistent and be relentless. Does that make sense? Be relentless. They are. Be relentless. Don't be at peace. Don't let the world be at peace. We've said, we've been that pietist who says, well, we don't kill our children. And, and, and that, which is a statistical lie, by the way, um, uh, uh, my wife runs a, a website called Help Before Abortion, not Help After, Help Before Abortion. And she cites the uh, fact that 70% of abortions in the United States are sought by professing Christians. So people say, oh, no, no, we just need to get them all to come into church. You know what I said one time? I said, uh, if the church is all shut down, if all the, all the Christians were raptured, as they say they're gonna, it would, it would, it would ruin the abortion industry. <laughs> yes, doctor. When we are trying to get people to turn up to a march or a demonstration or rally, these are people who, who say, you know, I need to pray about this. And, and you can say, Great, you've got a prayer vigil, uh, but they don't turn up to that either. Are these people who are avoiding conflict and controversy and ministry and so on, are they really worshipping the God of the Bible or are they worshipping the God who protects their personal peace and happiness? I mean, is it maybe a false God they've got in their mind? Because I can't imagine how they can be at peace with child killing without conflict, for example. I mean, you, you almost answer your own question. I, I agree with your premise um, that it boggles the mind 
that one could be undisturbed by uh, the act. But again, there's something to be said. I'm a covenantal theologian. I know you are. Um, there's been a covenantal breakdown for, for a long time that comes from the history lesson that I gave, where we've turned our back, we've acted like that was out of our lane to deal with things that are out, that don't occur behind stained glass building type thing. And so um, I'm not prepared. This is, and I've had this question from, from other people who, that I respect also. I'm not prepared to pry my hands in the Lamb's Book of Life and say they're believers or not believers, but it is a major, major problem. I mean, it, 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 at the least, it says that the culture of Christianity is very, very sick, that we can cohabitate with such peace. Like I said, uh, the, 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 one of the churches that I've tried, and I don't just start by bringing signs. We send the emails and call and stuff, you know, that they are a mile away from where they kill babies. And I have never, in six years of going to this place, never seen one of them. There's hundreds and hundreds of people. So are they worshiping the God of the Bible? Doesn't sound like it to me. Yeah. So, yeah. Does that, does that, yeah. I'm sorry that I, I wish I had a, you know, I wish, I wish I had a good answer for that. It's troubling. For example, some articles I've written for a very popular Christian magazine, one of the verses put in is, be sure your sin will find you out from numbers. Mm -hmm. And it was crossed out by the editor and said, that's not the God we wish. <laughs> what? <laughs> You're kidding me. And well, they sound like I that's right. That, that God condemns sin. My God doesn't condemn anyone. So when you've got these people who say, my God would never condemn homosexuals, my God would never condemn abortions, my God would never, my God's God of love. When they talk like that, you begin to ask, who are they worshiping? Because the God of the Bible that we see, imagine if, G if they saw Jesus walking in with a whip, chasing out corrupt people of the church. What would they say? You're not behaving like Jesus. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> well, I can tell you this. Isaiah wasn't very Christ-like either, apparently. <laughs> tell the people their transgression. Cry it out loud. I mean, yeah, exactly. So, uh, and and this is my this is my take on this. Um, and I, I, I want to hear your question. Um, this is my take on this: is that at some point. Yes, we keep appealing to the body of Christ, but we never think, we must never digress to the point that we think we need a majority. And, and that's part of what drives, has previously driven my exhortations to other believers, is this idea that we need more people, more people, more people, and we do. But what we really need is a committed minority. Read the Bible. The, uh, Leviticus 26, I think, verse 8, five of you will pursue a hundred. A hundred of you will pursue 10,000. What we lack is pursuing Christians. And so I've even asked myself this, Peter. I've asked myself, do I even want this guy coming out here with me? He's so weak. He's, so, he's just going to discourage the rest of the troops. He's just going to be problematic. 
we put out an abolitionist bill to completely abolish uh, uh, statewide, and we've had six or seven of them. I've been closely involved. I mean, in the state house, closely involved, deeply in, deeply involved with two of them in North Carolina and Oklahoma. You know who blocked them? This is gonna, you're gonna just wanna just get sick. The pro-lifers. The pro-lifers. There's an industry. There's an industry, it's a voting block for them. It's a voting, in Oklahoma, we have uh, 40 state senators, 33 of them are pro-life. We put up a bill for total abolition of abortion in the state of Oklahoma. We defy Roe. We're going to claim this is an abortion-free state. 33 out of 40 of these state senators, the guys who are going to vote on this, are pro-life. I went in their offices and they gave me one excuse after another. Oh, we can't just get rid of what will we do in the case of this and what will we do in the case of that? And, and they find exceptions that are very similar to the pro so-called choice. I call them pro-death. The people who are holding us up are the pro-lifers. And oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, and because they collect a lot of money, I'll give you some, I'll give you another drop. Um, the 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 um, when I talk to pro-life churches, um, I say, "Will you please get involved?" And they say, "No, no, we do. We give the pregnancy resource centers. That's what we do. We give the pregnancy resource centers. Don't you understand? Pregnancy resource centers can go along in a parallel world with the abortion on demand into perpetuity." And so I say, that's what they all say. We give to the pregnancy resource centers. Here's a piece of reality. And there are at least eight pregnancy resource centers for every abortion provider. We have diapers piled to the ceiling. We have sonogram machines piled to the ceiling and baby bottles and all the stuff. And that's what they're all giving to is supplies because there's no conflict in supplies. There's no conflict, there's no fight there. They don't want to get in the fight, but that's too bad for them. So there I draw a few connections here. You <laughs> said, pietists are hypocrites. That's and you know what Jesus said about hypocrites? <laughs> he said they're self-centered. And what does Jesus say we must do? Deny ourselves. And Jesus said that if we, on the day of judgment, Matthew 25, his condemnation will be for what we did not do. Yes. He did not visit those in prison. He did not visit those in the hospital. He did not care for the sick. He did not give holy to the naked, food to the starving. He did not care. The part from the personal life, the part from the death of the angels. Now, the parties think that they're more holy than us. I think they want to vote for us. They look down on us because we too act on us. Is it possible that the pietists are actually, if they're selfish and hypocritical, that they're actually denying God or is it cowardice? I mean, what is it that makes this huge block? If we have a gospel scope, that's a gospel music event, they'll pack out the stadium. But if you try to have a pro-life thing or sample counseling risky, you're lucky if you get a couple of dozen. Yeah. Now, what does it say about those people? 
No, I, 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 and, I, and I vehemently agree with you on that. I mean, the, 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 the great example of that is the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. You have, a, you have a priest, you have a Levite. Well, they undoubtedly had good moral opinions. They, I'm sure that the priest and the Levite didn't pass by the guy and say, good, I'm glad I'm for armed robbery. I'm glad he got what he did. I'm glad people are getting killed along the road. That's wonderful. I'm happy about that. They weren't pro-death. They had a good moral opinion. But it, when the rubber met the road, they said, as one commentator said, is they looked at him and they said, what's going to happen to me if I get involved? It's the Good Samaritan goes by and has more than a good moral opinion and says, what's going to happen to him if I don't? That's the Christian perspective. The Christian puts himself in the shoes of the one suffering. I like to think, I hope, and I wish that this could be true of me, but I really do hope that when I preach the gospel, whether it's on the, and I, I'm, I'm a reformed guy, Calvinist guy, notwithstanding, I want to preach the gospel as though I were unsaved and I were preaching to myself with all the fervor, with all the concern that I would if I were preaching to myself and it were my feet slipping into hell. I want to preach at the abortion mill like that was me who was getting ready to be ripped to shreds. I want to preach in that way. That's the kind of preaching I want to be. And so, yes, that's going on. But really in here again, yes, Jesus drove the money changers out and he cleansed that temple in 70 AD. He cleansed it. Read Josephus if you, if you have the stomach for it. You'll see. He cleansed that temple. That temple got raised to the ground, but did his kingdom stop? That's the point. That's really the point of the talk, is that was just the institution of the new covenant that's unstoppable. So, and so on one hand, I really, really appreciate, and I, I, yes, it's awful. The state of Christianity is awful, but I'm not discouraged at all. I have a po positive outlook because so okay. So, okay, die in the rubble. Die in your little temples. Die in your little temples and your little programs and your Bible studies and your feel-good program. Go ahead. The kingdom goes forward. And so that, I, I think I, that, that's been the thing that's kind of made me free to some degree, you know, about that. Yes, I still appeal. I still appeal to the, to the body of Christ. I still appeal. Um, but I want to. I'm going to hear your question. You've been waiting a long time. Yes, thank you. Okay. Um, to that question, I would ask. You said the Pietism it started around 500 years ago, or in a yes. So didn't won't you say it already started like in Jesus' time or after he died when the Pharisees told apostles don't don't proclaim it, don't proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. Yeah. Or the, would you say rather the pietism is in the Christian circles? I, I, in the Christian circles, okay. the latter. Yeah. So yeah, because let's be honest, there's nothing new under the sun. Pietism began at the fall in the Garden of Eden. You know, <laughs> that's 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 when it began. But became, became formalized philosophy, philosophically, and in the Christian circles in the 1500s and more so in the 1600s. That's what I'm saying. 
There's, a, there's kind of a date on the calendar when it began to be the way that we practice Christianity. It wasn't always that way. It was always a temptation, but it was formalized in that sense. Just like Descartes uh, formalized the Age of Enlightenment, if you follow philosophy. And I don't know if you've read any philosophy, read philosophy, there's an Age of Enlightenment. Age of Enlightenment is not new. The New Age Movement, remember that? The New Age Movement, not new. But there was a formality to it where it kind of received legs. And then, historically speaking, um, the Age of Enlightenment was weaponized at the French Revolution, but that's another talk, you know, where they, it came with the guillotine. Because the Tolerance Brigade is not nearly as tolerant as they make themselves out to be. We know that, right? So, but does that answer? Yeah. That answers your question. Okay, thank you. Yes, yes. Um, I have a question about. I know there's like Christians that are very like they're very. Uh, what's the word? Like they're very not rough, but like they straight to their words. They they say, for example, against homosexuality, they would say it's sin. You're going to hell. So I have this homosexual friend that like, what's the best way to approach them, showing them the love of Christ, but still reminding them that it's still sin and they're going to hell, without making them feel like other Christians in the past that apparently had chased them away from God by their way of talking and communicating to them. No, no, that's very good. I, and and I don't want to misrepresent. Thank you. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to address that instead of you just thanking it and leaving it with that. Uh, I am known to be a hard, charging, hard, pushing, evil defined person. And so I get this miss, um, I think it's an unfair one. Um, there's this notion, I'm talking to you, other believers, but when I'm on the street, Ma'am, would you like to talk about Jesus Christ? I would just like to talk to you for a minute. What do you think? Am I right or wrong about this? Would you read this track, please? I don't start by saying, you know, by saying, you evil, wicked witch, you know. <laughs> Look at you, you're all going to hell. I, I, I just don't, I don't start with that. A, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. Bible says you want to address things accordingly. Sometimes you need to escalate. Sometimes you need to escalate because the last, uh, because, because there's no other way. Sometimes you need to raise your voice because they're far away. Um, sometimes, and this is just a, this is just a, and it's a small aside, but it addresses it to some degree, is that um, the Bible says, Oh, let me get this right. Uh, smite the scoffer and simple will be where I think is how it says. So in other words, here's what happens. This happened many times in street missions. Many, 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 many times. I'm talking to a guy and he's very angry at me. And I mean, you should have been aborted. And I hate you. And you should shut up and go back to your church. And I hate ah, you. Know, the vomit. And, 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 and I'm saying, but will you consider again what I'm talking about, you, an atheist, you have no right to claim anything is right or wrong. Because after all, you're just stardust, I'm just stardust. What difference does it make if stardust running into stardust, you know? And I'm, I'm having this discussion and we're both elevated. And, and I mean, who cares? You have no basis for saying things are right or wrong and on and on, we go through this. And, and, and this guy goes away angry. Ah. I didn't mean every word in the book, but then there's this guy standing here who's been listening to everything I say. 
That happens a lot. And that means, and it, and it is a word to me. I, I, because I go into hostile situations, I often, when I get in a real hostile one, often sometimes with the authorities, the police, I'll wear a, a, a body cam. And one of the reasons I wear it is not to protect myself, but so that I can go back and look. And I can say, was that necessary? <laughs> you know, did I need to be... Was that necessary? What was my, because your tone does matter, you know? And I mean, really, uh, I appreciate that. Uh, you definitely start with, it's always gentleness and respect for all. Ma'am, why, why, why do you feel that way? Why are you, one of the things that I'll say often is, why are you angry? Why are you angry? If it's, if, and, and, and get them to explain to you, why are you angry? What do you care if this is nothing? You know, why are you angry? And, and then they'll begin to talk to you. They may yell at you, but it's important. What you're saying is very important. You don't start with that. With that. But sometimes, sometimes sin needs to be called out. So, yeah. Uh, yes, I saw your hand, then I got your hand. A simple question, but I'm just going to flesh it out. How do we, or how do I practically measure the advancement of God's kingdom? Because you started out by saying, or that was one of your opening statements, a religion is pietism if the gospel is not advancing. And the Bible does say uh, a tree will be known by its fruits. Um, so, for example, in abortion, just using a practical example, if you go out day after day, um, how do you measure that the gospel is advancing? Is it by the resistance you get? Is it by life that's saved? Is it ultimately by abortion becoming illegal and outlawed? That's just like a, a, a area of life. How do you practically see, okay, God's kingdom is advancing? Because many times as a Christian, um, you labor and you don't see fruits, you don't see results. But how do you know you're still on the right path, you're doing the right thing without seeing how do you measure? Yeah, I think you measure. I don't want to. I don't want to miss this point. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, you don't measure. You measure results by your faithfulness. Um, somebody asked me, and this has been asked of other evangelists before. How many people did you lead to Christ? I tell them all of them. <laughs> All of them. I led them all to Christ. Now, what they did with Christ was between them and the Lord, but I led them all to Christ. I lead them all to Christ. And so the question is, is was I faithful? Did I, did I shirk my responsibility? The culture, uh, who was it who said it? Francis Schaeffer, I think, said that the culture is our report card. So from a, so from a, more broad standpoint, yes, you cannot get away from the reality that we're asleep, dead, or sick. But personally speaking, like me and you, our church, um, we have to ask ourselves, have we been faithful? Have we been acting like people are going to hell? Have we been acting like Jesus is the king, have we been acting like babies are being murdered? You know, this kind of thing. You measure based on your faithfulness, I think. Yes, uh, uh, yes. yes. Um, 
the, just a point from how I look at it, and I often use biblical stories for my own self. And maybe I don't do things according to the way the pietists would, would like it. But I always use an example with the, you know, Elijah. I mean, he, you know, he really taunted them and, and you know, he didn't only just, um, you know, um, cower away or uh, go softly. He actually mocked them, you know, the, the, the fake priests and even made it so that gave them an advantage and poured water on the, on the, the you know, the wood. And then uh, he, he also afterwards had them all killed. I mean, I think that these things are quite serious and we should approach it. If this is now war. Um, soldiers go off to Afghanistan to shoot little shepherd boys because they might see them and they have to obviously shoot them. And, you know, they, people that they don't even know that may or may not have done anything wrong, but those same Christians will refuse to, to, to really fight for an innocent life as well. Mm-hmm. But just in going back to the Bible, is that, that for me, that's always been the example. And you're not going to be popular. You're not going to be the belle of the ball. And uh, I've always kind of um, realized that. And just don't even, don't even wish for that because it's just, it doesn't really happen. In, you know, um, you're outnumbered and often, and those stories are there to encourage us. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's quite a few of them. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Yeah. Now, it's, it's, it's not for the sake of, uh, I think what passes, again, what I said from the outset, what passes for Christianity is so often just the saving of our own skin is I'm going to be nice, I'm going to get you to like me, and if I'm nice enough and you like me, then somehow that will translate into the response that I want to get. But the response that I want to get is for you to like me. But sinners hate Christ. You understand this? Because they're dead in their sins and their trespasses. They hate Christ and they hate his rule. But again, how will they know unless a preacher is sent? You know, the very, the song we brought, I mean, what, what a great, what a great song. Psalm, Psalm 99. Send the light. Send the light where the world is crying out. That can't make it without him. They're going, they're drifting into absurdity. Tyranny and absurdity. The only place that paganism can go. Send the light. The blessed gospel light. Let it shine from shore to shore. Send the light. And then what happens, that's between the results or between them and them and God. But faithfulness is what, how we measure. Faithfulness. And, but again, not provoking deliberately. The gospel will provoke. I don't have to provoke. I don't have to provoke. And I've caught myself. I've been caught, like I say. I hit my GoPro and I'm looking at myself and I'm saying, oh, that was just wrong. You know, I just said, you know, I've said unkind things. I've acted like the pagan. So, so yeah, I, don't don't act like the pagan, you know. So with the homosexuality, for example, you know, they often say, oh, this is like medieval, you know, we're going back to medieval times. But I would often say, yeah, but Sodom and Gomorrah predates medieval by a few thousand years. I mean, who's, who's more backdated? 
And then eventually I would get more, even more annoyed. And then I'd say, well, K-Pride got Son and Fry. <laughs> 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 That's probably, uh, you know, as far as they're concerned, I'm going to hell for saying that. You know, well, so, yeah. Yeah. No, we're at war. I mean, we are at war. But again, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, for tearing down strongholds and high things that exalt themselves above the knowledge of God. So use that sword. You know, the, the, this is the weapon we have. Look in the, the armor of God. There is one weapon. It's the word of God. And people will discourage you. Even other Christians will discourage you from using the word of God. Well, that's like, I don't remember, it might have been, Bacham or somebody who said uh, that if you come into my house and uh, you know, and you say you're an invader, you're an intruder into my house, and you say, wait a minute, I don't believe in guns. <laughs> I'm not putting mine down. <laughs> Just because you don't believe in guns, I'm holding on to mine. Just because you don't believe in the Bible doesn't mean I'm not going to use it. I'm going to use it. This is the sword I have. Once I drop this, I lose everything. Here's how I, that's how I lose my fight. That's how I lose the fight. The fight is lost when we put this down. So we have to know the word of God. We have to use the word of God. And, and just let me just give this to you. Um, I, I've done this. I've thought, well, I, I need to look at every video ever seen. You know, and I need to look at every every tutorial and go to every conference and listen to people talk who do this kind of thing, and then I'll be ready. No, you won't be ready. Nothing will make you ready to do this but doing it. Nothing will make you ready to do evangelism but doing evangelism. Nothing will make you ready to go to the abortion mill but going to the abortion mill. Nothing will get you to understand how you interact when it's live. You know, that's why I have such little regard, you'll pardon me, for keyboard warriors. Because they get to sit and think and go to Google. That's not how it goes. It comes in real speed, in real time. And how we learn is in those settings. So yeah, put yourself, this is just, I'm giving this to you for free. Um, uh, take and put yourself in an uncomfortable, go a little deeper than you wanted to. Go a little further. Go, go, go into where it's not comfortable. Go there and watch and watch the Lord give you more than you thought you had. And he'll give you a, a comfort. I've said this so many times. I said it in a conference. Anybody can practice self-control sitting here. This is not an example of self-controlled people. You're sitting here with my friends. We all love the Lord, one presumes. You know, we had a nice, we've all eaten dinner, we're comfortable, we like one another. This is not self-control. Self-control is when the enemy is coming at you in real speed, threatening you. That's when you know you have the Spirit of God. And there's no substitute. There's no substitute for that conflict. There isn't. And I wish there was. Don't get me wrong. It's a misnomer about me that I like this. I don't like it. I can't stand it. When I'm going to go to the mill or go to do a hostel, when we went to Gay Pride Day, oh, I went over there with my wife, and I, I was on the death march. I was like, oh, man. 
And, and, and as soon as we opened up and started talking about Jesus Christ, they got violent. You know? But I wouldn't do it any other way. They got violent with Jesus. You know, is the servant greater than the master? You learn by doing. Which is a big part, I know, doctor, of what you do. Training people by putting them in position. I mean, if I understand ministry here correctly, I think I do. Um, so I don't want to go on too long. I don't want to wear out my welcome. Um, were there any other questions? Just there he is, the last question. Last question. <laughs> no, another question on measurement. So Toby had asked about the measuring how the gospel is at work or isn't. But I, as far as we look at even then our faithfulness to what God has called us to, I, I wrestle with seeing, kind of gauging that either by where my thinking is, where my heart is, or where my actions are going. And, and this, I think, the encouragement, perhaps in a nutshell, is seeing are we obedient in action to what Christ has called us and not simply in um, within our person. How do we find... Um, whether a measure or maybe a balance. Are there scriptures that you find that help in thinking through the balance in bringing all of that under the Lordship, that my personal living and thinking, my love for the Lord in the quiet places and the implications of that in the public sphere. So it's not, am I loving the Lord in this? Well, look at what I've done. Or am I loving the Lord? Well, look at what I think, what I... How, yeah, maybe other places that you found that help tie those together. Yes, 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 yes. That's very, very good and important. Um, the Bible says we're to love the Lord with our heart, soul, strength, and mind. None are to be neglected. Heart, soul, strength, and mind. Um, so, we, so we do, but if you love the Lord in your heart, if there is a heart, the Spirit of God is in your heart, here's what's going to happen. It's going to get to your fingertips. It's going to get to your feet. And so it's all. And so we deliberately and purposefully loving him with the whole person. And so, yeah, but I, I, and, and I will admit to you that there, it is easy to err by omitting either. And um, so when I go out to do spiritual battle, if you will, you know, going out to do battle, I'm thinking, okay, these are the key verses. Okay, where's my megaphone? You know, and all right, where's my where's my GoPro? I'm ready to go. Let's go to battle. You know, and we put on, I go out there, and 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 I'm focused on how I'm going to answer the fool according to the folly. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing, except for the fact that I can do just what you're saying is that I can leave the one out. You know, and I can be minimal in my prayer. And I could be minimal in my time in the Lord. But I will tell you that nothing will expose that like being in conflict. It really just can't, you're just not gonna, it will, what did you say? Be sure, the word says, your sin will find you out. And, and you can't, uh, you can't, you can't hold on to sin and think that you'll do well, it'll find you out. People will accuse you of the very thing that you're doing. I've seen it. Like people will say, do you want, 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 fill in the blank. And, uh, and 
they are, we can't, can't hold on to sin. We have to be personally holy before the Lord. There's no doubt about that. But to, to be personally holy will flow into a whole person. So yeah, um, maybe not a real good question, probably more discussion for that. And, uh, but it's not one or the other is what I'm stressing. And, and, and what I really want to stress, maybe just to close, is, is that we have focused on the one and stayed on the one, which is why I labor so hard on the other is because we've been all about our feelings. Go, go ahead, Google Christian songs, go YouTube, Christian songs. Oh, my heart, I love him so much. You know, oh, I love him and I feel so strongly towards him. I, I, I Googled, I Googled because I like the song Onward Christian Soldiers. There's like not enough versions of it. And the first version I found, you know what it was? It was sung by children. We have children singing that song. Ugh. You know? Like, what? Like, so we're sending our children to battle? What is that? Yes, the answer is yes. We have sacrificed our children, literally and figuratively. We've sacrificed them to the battle. So, yeah, so enough of that. You know, so that's why I argue so hard on that. If I come into your random Joe Splivy Baptist Church, Presbyterian Church, Community Church, and say, we need to have our hearts right before God. You know, and if your heart isn't right before God, I can tell you, you're not going to be right before God. And we need to spend time in the Lord. And we need to spend time in the morning. And don't, no breakfast, no prayer, no breakfast, no Bible, no breakfast. Everybody say, oh, that's wonderful. You're so wonderful. You're so wonderful. And God wants to bless you if you would just put him first in your life. And you see all these things. And it was, oh, that's so good. And we just think that's such a good preacher. And you say, all right, let's go to the abortion mill. And they say, huh? But my heart. But I love the Lord in my heart. You know, what are you talking about? And so that's why I labor so hard on the one side. If we were on the other side, if we were just out there, you know, and, and lighting fires and stuff, well, then I would say, we've got to get our hearts right. You know, we got to get our hearts right. We're no different than the pagans. You know, so it, it, it didn't directly answer your question, but at least says why I've chosen to have a more robust view of Christianity that involves the whole man, the whole woman, raising us up to be full people of God, to robustly take on every enemy that raises up their hand against the Almighty. We are his ambassadors. The Bible says we're his ambassadors, that he's given us the word of reconciliation. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. Nothing gets reconciled apart from Christ. And so that's our job. So, you look like you're getting ready to go sing or something. Yeah.
Oh, okay, okay. No, that's okay. I, <laughs> the only thing I run here is my mouth. <laughs> so uh, I just couldn't help to notice that there's some ladies standing up in the back. I don't know if they were tired or if they were expecting an altar call or uh, <laughs> what's coming. <laughs> what's coming next? Well, let, you know, may I pray? Let's stand and I'll pray, and then we'll do whatever you say. Well, we, well, Father God, we we ask that you'll endow us with your Spirit in a new and fresh way, uh, that you'll make us to be. Uh, uh, bold and stout-hearted, uh, but not pridefully so, not imagining ourselves to be greater than your enemies, for we were such also, but you rescued us. And so uh, make us humble, make us bold, make us confident in you, and uh, send us away here. Uh, let this be a new day for us, uh, where we've learned something new, where, that we're ready to apply, uh, having a zeal that's accompanied with knowledge. And uh, so we pray these things. I pray your blessing on this place. I pray that uh, you, as you will uh, continue to generationally bless uh, Frontline Fellowship and uh, the work that you've begun here, uh, completed until the day of Christ, uh, and be exalted even as we spend our time here together uh, in these last few moments. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you.